New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and today I'm hosting David Bedrick. He's a psychological activist, an ally to the unheard and marginalized voices inside individuals and culture at large. He's a teacher, an attorney. He's on the faculty of the Process Work Institute. He is a practitioner of process-oriented psychology and he comes out of the School of Jungian Psychology, and he is the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. David, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thanks, Justine. It's great to sit here again with you. David, please help us to understand a quote out of your book, You say there is no symptom that belongs only to the individual, whether that symptom is emotional, spiritual, physical, social, or financial. You go on to say we don't consider this larger web that we live in. What does that mean in the way that you work with people? Mm -hmm. It means if a person comes to me with a weight issue, I find out about their gender. And if a person tells me about depression, I find out about their race or their ancestry. And if a person says they're angry, I try to find out about what culture they came from and how that was put together or whether there's an abuse history along lines or in generations, or if that person was gay or had gay parents. All those questions to me are critical. Tell me more about that background story. So if I went to a therapist and let's say I was anxious and then they would start to treat that symptom, but I've gone to different psychologists and psychiatrists through the years. I don't remember that anyone had asked me, well, uh, what is your ethnic background or what is your family background? Uh, where did you come from and what was the dynamic there? And that's what you're saying, that there, it, that's important because whatever my symptom is, it is embedded within a larger web. Mm-hmm. The larger web of your own family and history and skin color and culture and also the culture that we live in. You're anxious. I might say, can you show me that anxiety? Is it a shaking before I try to relieve it because you're uncomfortable being anxious? Can you show me that anxiety? Is it a shaking inside? Is it a, is it a tightness? Is it a frozenness? Many people experience anxiety as a kind of a shaking. And I'd say, go ahead and shake. Tell me the story about shaking. And if that person really started shaking, they might talk about their own history. They might talk about forces against them. They might show me that they have a lot of movement and energy in them, but feel stifled because they shouldn't move so much. They should sit still, things like that. So what a person shows you is going to have a whole story, a myth to it that has to do with the culture they live in, the world they live in, the gender, the et cetera, they live in. You know, David, all that you're saying reminds me of a moment in my life, in my relationship with Michael. I didn't realize that because he suffered from diabetes, his mental faculties were starting to fail. 
And I was very dependent on him to navigate certain ways in life and our Mm. business and our work. And those were starting to fall apart. And because I was so dependent on them, I just was really, really anxious. And we went to a therapist, and we did some sand tray work. And he got a person, a baseball player, that was sitting on the bench. And the part of the sand tray that I put in... I found a volcano, Hmm. and the volcano was spewing out all of this fire and molten lava and everything is what I was feeling. And um, I'm sad to say that the therapist was of absolute no help. Afterwards, as Michael and I were driving away, Michael said, wasn't that a great session? And I'm still feeling this volcano. I'm so anxious because of everything that's going on and my dependency on him mm-hmm. and my inability to stand up in my own intelligence mm-hmm. and to take the reins, so to speak. It's such a great story because you're saying to me, as my ears hear, that there was something called anxiousness. But if we hung out with that anxiousness, believed in that anxiousness, believed in the depth of that anxiousness, it becomes a power a volcanic power. So then it starts looking like anxiety. That means an energy that's uncomfortable, that's shaking you, so to speak, that you wish you could get rid of. But then when it's supported, this your story says, it looks like a great energy, a volcanic energy that can explode. What can it explode with? You're now telling me. Your own intelligence, your own agency, your own empowerment relative to the relationship and where you want it to go next. So what looks like anxiety to me now, I would say, that looks like a suppressed great power and intelligence that wants to take over and show itself. That therapist missed that part. That's going to leave you unsatisfied. You would have been unsatisfied even if someone helped calm down the anxiety because it's not meant to be calmed down. It was meant to come out and erupt big power to show itself. I see Mm -hmm. that now, and that's the whole point of the kind of work that you do. You, David, are not afraid to go into what is labeled then anxiety, that Mm -hmm. powerful eruptive energy. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to suppress it. Quite the opposite. You Mm -hmm. are doing something else. That's, That's right. I'm supporting it. And then going to the social issue, I could say, is your what's called anxiety, meaning the suppression of this volcanic energy and your intelligence and your power, is that related to gender in a relationship with a male who has a more dominant role? You're nodding your head. Most of the time that would be true. So this is a personal story. It's a relationship story between you and Michael, and it's a gender story. Many women would have that sense. Inside of me, there's a huge amount of power that I hold down, and then it looks like uncomfortableness. Exactly, exactly. I think of another example Mm. that you give in your book. Uh, you worked with a woman, I think it was about weight, and she was addicted to caramel mochas. <laughs> I do remember. My question always is, what's going on underneath? That's the depth psychological question, the activist question. Why is it an activist question? Because the activist says things disturb the status quo for good reasons. Black people protest for good reasons. Women march for good reasons. People have addictions for good reasons. Good reasons doesn't mean that that's the best expression of it. Good reasons means there's an expression that wants to be known that we should find out about. If we know and find out about it, it's going to get easier. So in that case, she wanted these caramel lattes. She wanted to lose weight. That was her thing of choice. 
they're like, I don't know what she said, they were like 720 calories, I think she said, per thing. And she would go get a couple of these per day in addition to her meals, so that was difficult. And I said to her, you must really want those. And she said, well, I shouldn't want them. They're bad for me, et cetera, what most people would say. And I gave her a bottle. And I said, grab this bottle, I'm gonna hold it also. And I said, and feel how much you want those. So she grabbed it and I grabbed it. And she said, okay, I said, you really want them a lot because you tell yourself not to go get them, but you go get them anyway. So it must be a pretty powerful force because you go against all this inner sanctioning, et cetera. She said, yeah, I said, okay, I'm gonna be the diet program. I'm gonna take them away from you. You can't have them. And so I try to pull them away and she tried to pull them towards her. I said, great, keep doing that. And pretty soon I said, you can't have them. She said, I want them. And the wrestle became kind of real-ish. It sort of became alive. And I said, I, then I give a real big yank, no. And she said, I need them. I said, why do you need them? And she said, because I want to be happy. She said, and I was like, oh, so then we have a whole discussion. How come you're unhappy? What would make you happy? She actually wanted to go to law school. Her husband didn't want her going on to school, wanted her to stay at home, etc. So she had to satisfy a need, a hunger. In this case, it was for happiness that was going to get fulfilled by her developing her career. Now she could let go of the caramel lattes, which she did. It took her a while because it took her a year and a half to get to law school. Then she let go of those things. Why? Because she was holding on to the things she really wanted to hold on to. Now, if I try to say, get rid of those, let's imagine I had the perfect diet program. There is none. Let's imagine I had, <laughs> I had that. And I could say, magic, magic. I made my magic wand. Caramel lattes are taken away. But what happened to her career? What happened to the law degree? What happened to the client she's going to see? What happened to the life that she was going to live by holding on to what she wants? I sacrificed the life for getting her off the latte. Is it worth it? We could decide if it was a drug that was deadly, maybe I would want to. As you say, if, if someone is in an abusive situation and they're being physically harmed, that's one thing. But if they're in a kind of denial state of their own potential, that's another. Yes. It's such a big thing to honor what people are going through and really get it. For some reason, I keep on thinking about wealth. and I, I almost never talk about class issues. and I don't address them enough in the book, but I worked with a client quite a while ago who came in. She was a Southerner and had lots of money. And she was working on all these symptoms. And I started asking her what it was like to have as much money as she had turns out she had all these protective mechanisms because she didn't want to let people know how much money she had because then people would treat her a certain way. And then if they treat her a certain way that she wouldn't really get intimate, people wouldn't feel close to her. Or if she said something about something difficult in her life, they might say, it's not a big deal because you have all this money. So she developed all these strategies to insulate herself from the wealth. And then most of her issues had to do with connecting with people and being intimate with people. She didn't know how to say, I have a lot of money. You probably feel this way. What do you feel about that? It's awkward for me. I'm so afraid to tell you because then you'll think I'm not one of you. All those discussions that could become intimate, she didn't have because she developed around class issues. Some people do that around money. Maybe they'll just stick with people who have the same amount of money as them so they don't have to deal with those things. Then there's a disconnection. There's a separation and a loneliness. Then you can develop a foundation or trust so I don't have to deal with anybody personally. That's nice because I give the money, but all these things happen. I've seen that happen before around class issues. People have lots of money. They develop a disconnection from intimacy with their children, with other people. So this insulation has happened because of class. You're bringing up so many things. All of your work connects then the personal and the cultural. You're working within 
the culture in which they have grown up and mm-hmm. the culture in which we're all embedded, we're all affected by it. Is there any advice that you have as to how we can become more aware of this bias that we we live in and mm-hmm. swim in? It's a perfect way to say it. We live in it and swim in it. It's such a sea. I didn't do as well at the interview as I would have liked to. If you asked me, I could probably lay out 20 criticisms. You really did eat too much. You really should have said this. And then I kind of go, oh, yes, I should have. We live under a veil of critique. It's not meaningless. It has biases. It has gender, race, culture biases. It says there's a way to be. I've never met an inner critic that is not diversity stupid, I told somebody. <laughs> Meaning they have one way. They have, this is the way to be. So that has such a stupidity to it. How do we get out of that? Because we mostly believe it. I believe I didn't do this well. I could have done this better all day long. And I believe if I don't have that, I'm not going to do better next time. All those things. So I think if I told people to do one thing, I would say, think of one or two things that you criticize yourself for. Pick out a quality or something you do more than once. Maybe you've been doing it on and off for 30 years or most of your life. Those are the good ones to pick. And then consider the possibility that you're not doing something wrong, that something is against you, something is against something important. And if that criticism were gone, it would come out in a way that was more graceful and beautiful. I wouldn't be arrogant, I'd be at ease. I wouldn't be angry, I'd be powerful. I wouldn't be depressed, I'd be laid back. I wouldn't be anxious, I'd be spiritual. (laughs) I wouldn't be doing hallucinogens, I'd be reflecting. So what I'm Mm -hmm. hearing you say, David, the image that is coming to me, that inner critic, that criticism I have of myself, what you're saying is to befriend it, to be an ally with it. And in that way, it can really start to give you the best advice instead of just trying to get your attention. Yeah, it can give you good advice. And if it can't, it can point to things that are really amazing about you. Because the very worst critics, the most deadly critics, point to the best in you. (laughs) They just don't know how to do it any better. In other words, let's imagine I'm a jealous person in your head right? Whatever great thing is about you, that's the thing I'm most jealous of. (laughs) Shamanic cultures would say that's exactly what it is. It's a jealousy. Let's imagine that I always hated how able you were to interview people and be personal and share your own stories. I'm thinking of things you're actually doing during our times together. And I was really jealous of that. How did she get to do all that? And if I weren't free to say, Justine, I'm so jealous of you. How did you get to do all this? Then you, would, then you should trust me because I'm saying it out loud. I'm having fun. I'm interested in you. But if I couldn't do that and, you, and I could plant in your head, I'd say, well, yeah, you know, then maybe that wasn't the best job you did. I wouldn't feel complimentary of you because why give you a compliment if I'm jealous of you? And you would feel around me an atmosphere of lack of support, appreciation, criticism. If you internalize that, it would go after the very best qualities, your ability to interview, your ability to be personal, to meld personal story with intellectual information, all those things I'm really seeing in you, those would become the targets. Right. And that way the critic inside of us sometimes targets the very best of us. And then if I criticized you enough and you believed me, those qualities wouldn't come out looking so good. Right. They'd come out as if they were hated qualities. But what mm-hmm. do they say about you, David, then, that jealousy? What is the power of that within you that is being overshadowed? Yes. Jealousy has desire and passion in it. 
oh, I can't believe she gets to have that. She gets to do this incredible radio show year after year. How come I don't get to do those things? If you listen to me, there's a great passion and a desire. I want something. Maybe it's exactly what you have. Maybe it's something different, but I want to go as far as you went with it. And I'm passionate about it. Can you hear my voice? I really want it badly. So inside that jealousy are those two things. What do you want really badly? What would you love to have? Is there any way to go for that or move an inch in that direction? So it's a kind of urge for something authentically yours that you can live in a kind of fullness. That's exactly what it is. So if someone comes to me and says they're jealous about something, I'm jealous, and my husband says I'm jealous, and my wife says I'm jealous, and my friends say I'm jealous. How do I get rid of that? I think, oh, this is great. Jealousy is a marvelous thing. They light up. What do you mean jealousy is a marvelous thing? Show me your jealousy. Then I say, use that energy. What do you want? What do you want to go for? How intensely do you want it? Oh, it's not that big a deal. Well, you are furious (laughs) about that person. Bring some of that fury, and I want to see all that. When that person gets in touch with that, the jealousy will diminish and their hunger to do something in their own life will grow. If I could wave a magic wand, let me get rid of all that jealousy. Oh, I'm relieved. What happened with the thing that I was passionate about? What happened with the music I wanted to play? What happened with the body I wanted to develop in the gym? What happened with the relationship I wanted to go to? In order to push this back into the shadows, get rid of the jealousy that's making people uncomfortable, I sacrifice the person's life energy. That's a bad deal. Bad deal. Oh, well, we could go on and on about Mm -hmm. this. This is great. I hope that that leaves a flavor of the kind of work that you do Mm -hmm. with our listeners. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today Mm -hmm. on the New Dimensions Cafe. You're welcome, Justine. Wonderful sitting with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I've been here with David Bedrick, and he's the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. And if you'd like to know more about his work as a psychological activist, uh, you can go to his website, davidbedrick.com. He spells his last name B-E-D-R-I-C-K, David Bedrick. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. I invite you to please join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.